0: Last week we saw that, we saw what false discipleship looks like. And then we were invited to think about what a true disciple is. And don't worry, his hard words, I promise you, he won't say anything hard until he talks again. And so this week we see what unbelief looks like. What, what is glorifying to God and what it means to really follow Jesus. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, we'll read to verse 24 and spend our time there today. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Once again, Jesus encounters people who don't quite fully get him. And John, one of the eyewitnesses, the, one of the apostles of Jesus, arguably the best friend of Jesus, wants to introduce us to Jesus again by introducing us to people who don't quite get Jesus. We saw that that went all the way down even to the twelve that he called such that one of them wasn't there. But even so, we see now, did you catch that? Even his own family didn't quite believe in or understand who Jesus was. Here's what I think we see here. To believe in Jesus is to trust his timing and his work, to be separate from the world and to be taught by him. Now we'll unpack each of these things as they kind of unfold themselves in this passage. But once again, we meet a group of people who basically want Jesus because they just want him to do what they want. It's more of the same. People want miracles. Instead of seeing the sign as a wonder that points to his authority and divinity they just are mesmerized by it they're distracted by it now i see this all the time we experience this regularly they're right i try to illustrate a biblical truth and i give an illustration and many of you remember the illustration and you don't even remember the biblical point i was trying to make right some of you will come up to me and you like ha ha jonathan that was really funny and i'll say do you remember like the point i was trying to illustrate nope but it was funny right and so I blame you, you blame me. But either way, neither, like th- the same thing is happening, right? These people came to Jesus, and he was basically, by, by miraculous signs and wonders, pointing to something bigger, giving an illustration to his divinity by walking on water, right? By by being the bread in the wilderness that sustains and delivers. And they're like, Cool trick, Jesus, keep doing it. And they miss the point of the sign, the wonder. They miss the point of the illustration. And that's what Jesus has encountered so far. He does a miracle. People become fixated by it. And in chapter 6 and even chapter 7, he draws a crowd. And the act of drawing a crowd is something they become fixated with. Up to this point, his miracles were, were something everyone was fixated with. Now drawing crowds is something they're fixated with. So much though, did you see? His brothers are like, hey, if you really want to draw a crowd, this is how you do it. So just like in chapter 4, when Jesus was meeting with the Samaritans, he introduces us to something like, I'm the one you're looking for, and yet I am radically different than the one you're looking for. In this chapter, we see the same thing. People are looking for Jesus. They're looking for him geographically. Where is he? But then you see this discussion. They're looking for his identity. Who is, how do we explain who he is? And what we see, I think, is pretty compelling. Jesus sets himself against the world. Literally, the world hates him. And it makes him very difficult, very hard to pin down. And we're left, I think, John gives us no option but to do something with Jesus. You have to come face to face with him. The magnitude of his claims, the magnitude of his influence, the fact that 2,000 years ago, we're uh, uh, like... Something happened that we're still talking about today means you have to do something. And John says basically, you either think he is nothing or you think he's everything. You can't ignore him. You have to contend with him and his words. And so the people, as you see here, try to do just that. And they try to pin Jesus down. Well, here's what I would say we do on a regular basis we don't try to pin Jesus down, we try to turn him loose. Right, the goal, even if my words aren't to somehow encapsulate the, the person and work of Jesus such that you'd be like, "That's thanks for those words. Instead, I'm just like, look at Him. Listen to Him. We don't want to like boil Him down to something. And that's what we do on a weekly basis. We dive into this word. We open it up and simply say, God, show us more. Hopefully, even everything I say, my, my goal in preaching is simply to just turn Him loose. I say this on a regular basis, if you get in the car and drive away and you're talking about me or the music, you missed the like you, you, did, you did the same thing. You saw the sign, but you didn't look through it to see Jesus. My goal is that when you walk out of here, you marvel and say, isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he more marvelous than I first thought? And that's the point. Because even now, if you're looking at me and you're like, well, who does he think he is? Well, nobody. But listen to Jesus' words. Ask yourself, who is he telling you who he is? That's the point. And what we see modeled here is what we hopefully do ourselves. We cease to need the world's fame, acceptance, and glory. We're content with his. We're content to point away from ourselves, a theme that goes all the way back to chapter 1 and John the Baptist. And point to Jesus. It ends in this passage saying, alright, Jesus kind of sums it up. You are judging by appearances. But you ought to judge with right judgment. And ends with this picture. Judge, Don't stop judging by appearances, but judge by right judgment. I.e. not by appearances. And so how do you judge not by appearances? Well, let me give you a summary that we'll walk through And this chapter lays it out for us. Judging rightly is roughly this. Knowing the ways of the world, seeking the Father's will as the source of understanding, discerning false explanations of Jesus, and seeing and seeking God's glory over man's. This literally is a chapter of questions. Scholars would say even literally this chapter is 20 questions. And so for you inquisitive people, you're in for a treat. It was a barrage of questions, wasn't it? Most of them not answered, which is John's way of inviting you and I and all our skepticism and questions to go like, oh, I have questions. Indeed, everyone who follows Jesus will have questions. But don't miss the point John is making. Curiosity, having lots of questions, does not equal faith. So let me warn you, many of you are curious enough about Jesus to look to him for answers, but you have not entrusted yourself to him. So the fact that you're here and you're desperate for answers and maybe you're just considering the possibility that Jesus might have some, that's a good thing. I'm really glad you're here, but don't miss. That's like the doormat. That isn't dwelling wholly with Jesus. That's just the entrance into that. That's an invitation. Because we see something amazing that Jesus does. He confronts the ways of the world. He confronts the people around him that do not rightly understand him. And he does something pretty profound that I would say on a regular basis we want to point to. You see this subversive fulfillment of the gospel. Subversive fulfillment. We talk about this as uh, the gospel being ambivalent. That is, on one hand it, it repulses, but on the other hand it attracts. Right, so last week we saw that the receiving the gift of Jesus is also to receive the critique. From chapter 1, Jesus, John tells us, is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the only reason that's joyful or hopeful for us is to admit that we are sinful people in need of some sort of source of healing. And so I told you, like, to give someone a gift. Like, I don't know, we, I saw this afterwards. Someone, told, like, someone said, hey, here's a breath mint, right? Thank you. But on the other hand, you, you catch it like it's, like it's kind, but it's kind of subversive, isn't it? And to receive the gift, you kind of have to receive the critique and so we say on a regular basis that the gospel both both pushes and repels while it attracts it's the it's the if if that's happening that's when we know we're actually encountering jesus and so we say on a regular basis the way we want to begin to summarize that subversive fulfillment is the, the simple phrase we say is that you're wrong and you are loved And half of you in the room get really excited about one of those things, even to the detriment of the other. But don't miss what Jesus is doing. He's going and presenting himself to these people, offering subversive words to the extent that at the end of this story, he'll offer himself as the accepting sacrifice. And so don't miss that. To really see this encounter for what it is, is to embrace the tension that Jesus seems to have, not only with his brothers, but also with the religious elite. And we, living in the world as Christians with distinctly Christian convictions, embrace those two truths. You're wrong. And yet you're loved. And so many of you are from a background where, like when I say you're wrong, like something inside you kind of gets excited, right? Yeah, Jonathan. You tell them. You tell them like it is, right? This is a more protective, I would say conservative disposition, right? You're wrong. To the point where Maybe you're yelling it so loudly, no one actually hears that you're loved. And for the rest of you, you're sitting in here and I say, God loves you, you are loved, you, that you get excited, right? You're like, yes, thank you, thank you, keep saying, right? Enough with this whole you're wrong, just, you just tell me how much I'm loved, right? you get it? And you're probably, again, same, if I'm to throw stones, right? Remember, we don't drag Jesus into politics, we, we let Jesus be Lord and let him lead us into our political affiliations. And so on this side, you probably, I could be wrong, but you're probably more more liberal leaning, right? And you probably really, you're you're deep in compassion, but you don't like that other part. Notice, Jesus will mess with you both. Jesus will rip your present, pre-existing loyalties out of your hand and offer you a new kingdom. This is a beautiful thing for us. You're wrong. You are dead in your trespasses. You are in sin. And yet what? You are loved. You are loved. Not because you're awesome, but because He is. So don't miss it. There's a subversive fulfillment. And there's no religion like this. A lot of religions have subversion or even just fulfillment. right? Islam has a subversion through authority. You can make yourself a Muslim. Buddhism has a fulfillment through enlightenment. And you can... Make yourself a Buddhist. But Christianity has claims to lordship, a subversive fulfillment through God's blessing. You cannot make yourself a Christian. Did you catch the subversive fulfillment? You can't do this. You are unable. You are dead in sin. And yet what? God's grace was demonstrated to us that while we were dead in sin, while we're the enemy of God, Christ died for the ungodly. Did you get it? You can't, can't get one without the other. To, 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 to lean on one to the detriment of the other is to miss Jesus altogether. In one sense, He fulfills your deepest desires. He fulfills your deepest aspirations. But in another sense, He challenges you. All your aspirations and desires are too self-centered. They're too small. The gospel fulfills all the needs that our culture seems to put in front of us. But it also challenges every single one of the assumptions behind those needs. It gives us a new worldview, a new set of underlying beliefs. Now this is a great freedom here. We usually try to explain Christianity to the world. We try to explain how rationally acceptable Christianity is to the culture, but what does Jesus say here? Ultimately, the claims that he's going to make, what he has to say about the culture, namely that what it does is evil, right? The subversion puts us at odds with it. And we have to critique, I think, based on a deeper loyalty, a higher authority. So let's become, let's like be sojourners in this text, right? Beginning of verse one, after this, Jesus went about Galilee. This word after this, Remember, Jesus according to John is different than the synoptics. He has like theological traits that he wants to teach. He's like like your friend that's always trying to drop deep thoughts. That's John, right? And so he's not worried about time. So basically, if you remember last chapter, it was springtime. It was near near, uh, the celebration of the Passover. Bang, all of a sudden it's the Feast of Booths. So now it's fall. One of the three most important Jewish holidays. In fact, it was the most popular Jewish holiday. And so he goes... Uh, instead of going immediately to Judea, he, he wants to stay. We saw this from the previous chapters. People have already, he's already offended enough people they want to kill him. And so he's just hanging out in Galilee. Now I think part of this is to fulfill the, a prophecy of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 9 that this good news would be coming from an unlikely source. It would be coming from an unlikely place. It wouldn't come just first to the household of God but it would come from the, out, like the outcasts, hence the Samaritan woman at the well, right? There's a fulfillment here But he's staying away from Judea. Why? Because his hour has not yet come. The thing he came to do isn't yet at at hand. Verse 2, he says, Then evidently the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Booths. It's in the bigger celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's not a helpful word for us, right? The better word for us us instead of booth would be tent. Right? So if you go camping, you don't get a booth. We have a, a booth is something like you sell something out of, right? Like a toll booth, phone booth. No one knows what that is anymore. Never. That's a terrible example terrible example. It's like a typewriter. What? That's not helpful. So it's a feast. Let's call it a feast of tents. And it's meant to call to remembrance when Jesus, or excuse me, when God was, ah, I got ahead of myself. See what I did there? When God was leading his people as they were wandering through the wilderness mumbling and muttering all the way to the promised land, so much so that the that these rebellious Israelites died until the next generation got to see the promised land. But God provided for them every step of the way. And the way that he provided for them was manna from heaven. We saw that last chapter. But the way that he cared for them or protected them is they were simply living in tents. And every, every single place they would stop, they would set up a special tent called the tabernacle, which was a, a temporary dwelling place that represented that For them, God's presence even in wandering. And so they would get together and in this celebration for at least seven days, most of them they would set up tents. Now this is, you can relate to this sort of, right? Think of all the holidays. We do this too. Think of all the holidays where we celebrate by going camping, right? That's just the thing you do. You go cook out, right? A celebration of some more like of you know, like more primitive times. This would have been the biggest holiday possible for them. The biggest holiday possible. And yet Jesus is hanging back. Now, don't miss what, Je- what, 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 what John is doing, right? We saw this in Acts chapter 12. We saw this a couple, uh, you know, chapter before and a few chapters before that. Every time he, he gives us a picture of a celebration, whether it be a wedding or a feast, he's like, and then Jesus kind of did the thing, right? So if you read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, all the people of Israel... Grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, "Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had just simply died in the wilderness, right?" And so that's what they're celebrating: wandering through the wilderness while God provides for them, while they're muttering, right? And so they're saying, "John does this, right? He's like, okay, so there we were. It was the feast of tabernacles, right? Remember, we were celebrating the time when God gave us a leader, Moses." To send us through the wilderness while we were muttering and grumbling. Oh, yeah, John, what happened then? Well, Jesus started leading us and teaching, and people started muttering and grumbling. <laughs> you get it? Like, n- like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Don't miss. There's, the thing that's happening has happened before. Jesus offers a better version of it, a fulfillment of it. And so they're muttering. Big surprise. But notice the next thing. The brothers of Jesus tell him the ways of the world. I'm going to spend most of my time talking through these next couple of points at the beginning of this text because they really set the stage for understanding the rest. Notice what happens. Jesus' brothers begin to explain how things work. Hey, Jesus, you got lots of potential, but here's what you need to do. And Jesus shows us that there is a collision between Jesus and the world. And if there was a collision course of Jesus and the world, then there is a collision course of Jesus followers in the world. To miss on this, to miss out on this particular point is to misunderstand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. They give what I would say is a pretty good cultural rundown. Hey, Jesus. If you want to make it big, here's what you do. you got to have the right image, and you got to live in the right city. Newsflash, some of you live in Sioux Falls for that very same thing. This is what you got to do in this place. So be it. I think God can use those motives, but don't miss, that's the motive of the world. And some of you right now, I mean, I, I, we, we, we get excited about this on a regular basis. Some of you, like Mark chapter 5, you need to go home. Well, you need to let our church send you back to the city that you, don't think you think is not cool, to the real image of maybe your own hometown. Stop running and simply be a presence in a humble, obscure place, all for the glory of Christ. Don't miss, this is a thing, right? People still do this. We're in, we're in the middle of the most massive urbanizing movement that the world has ever seen, where people by jobs or whatever are moving to the city. There's lots of reasons, sociological, that are, that are pushing that, but don't miss it. They're all around the same thing, basically. You have these needs that are met in the city, and Jesus is like, well, that's, that's one way to see it. And one of the greatest hindrances to vital Christianity is this assumption that the Christian's job and that the church's job is just simply to rubber stamp cultural trends. Don't miss that. The greatest hindrance to following Jesus will be to assume that our job is to somehow catch up with the times. And you, catch, you see this on a regular basis. Look, all of the dying churches have one thing in common. They're all trying to get with the times every single one of them every dying denomination is paying for this getting with the times a purging and a cleansing is happening they've been neutered by their deep desire for the culture to love them friend don't miss jesus seeking the same thing and their greatest rule is don't say anything about jesus that's offensive And that's a really surefire guaranteed way of not saying anything about Jesus ever. Look, if your truth and your love are not controversial, you don't look like Jesus. Ask yourself this question. What fashionable trends, what cultural movements might you be caught up in? Jesus isn't being contrarian here for the sake of being contrarian. He's like a doctor who gives you a disease diagnosis so he can heal you. What trends in fashion and culture are driving your assumptions about reality? Don't miss one of the greatest hindrances to vital Christianity, multiplying, faithful, life-giving Christianity is to recognize that Jesus calls us to swim upstream against those trends. Here's something really important Literally, one of those streams that Jesus is swim, swimming up against, did you catch that? His own family. I hope some of you are encouraged by that. Because I know some of you in this room, you're the lone believers in your family. Praise God for you. You're the lone believer in your family. I, I, I might say this, maybe this is too flippant, but you're the lone believer in your family. Like Jesus! <laughs> and so two things. First, I want you to be encouraged you're counted among Jesus and his relationship to his family. I know some of you are fresh off of a, like a, a sour encounter with your family over Thanksgiving, right? Like I, and I just, I want to give you, I don't know, Jesus has a way of saying like, I get it, I know what that's like. My own brothers, they watched me up close, and yet they didn't quite get it. So, it, so if you're, first be encouraged, right? Be thoroughly encouraged. You're in the same boat as, and we talk about this on a regular basis, we're in the same boat as Christians, but also other people who, one of the first loyalties they're called to lay down is what? Jesus says they're family. Be encouraged. God gives us in Christ a new, eternal family that is actually greater and deeper than your biological one. It's an eternal one that we're born again into. Second thing is this. I want you to be humbled. On the other side... You can't make your family believe in Jesus. Look, the circumstances for belief for Jesus' brothers are completely ideal. Agreed? Like, you you can't get closer to Jesus than this. And yet, even though the situation was ideal, the time wasn't right, and their eyes weren't opened. They missed it until the resurrection. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teaching, living in Christ's own company were not enough to make Christ's brothers believers. For the mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. Let me repeat that. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. So on one hand, be encouraged if you're the lone believer in your family. We're with you. We, we love you. And we want to help you. But, but on the other hand, be humbled. If Jesus' brothers teach us anything, those circumstances weren't what caused them to believe. They had ideal circumstances and missed it completely. Look what they begin to tell him then. They said, okay, if you're going to do this, you've got to show yourself and look this certain way. But look what he says in verse 6. My time has not yet come. First thing I want you to see here, we have to turn over the keys and the schedule to Jesus. Galatians 4.4 4 says this best, and I'll move right on. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I would encourage many of you because maybe you have right belief about Jesus, but you have no patience for him and you're scrolling through social media, your, like your, your microwave, your, your instant gratification that defines every single part of your life has made you completely paralyzed to know Jesus. Notice how we not only give him control over who we are and what happens, we also give, them, give him control over the schedule. He just straight up, look, it's not time. And maybe the most encouraging thing I can say to one of you today is like, look, God is sovereign. He began a good work in you. He's going to carry it out to completion in Christ Jesus, but not yet. The thing He wants to do in you is to shape you in the suffering, through the suffering, in spite of the suffering. Please don't forget the symbol of our movement is a cross, it is not a lazy boy recliner. It is a tool of suffering and punishment. And yet through that suffering and punishment is what? The greatest joy, hope, and glory that we know. So maybe the good news for you this morning is God's got you, He's going to hold you, but the thing you're waiting on isn't ready yet. Don't miss out on Jesus because you're imposing your timetable on Him. He says, it's not time. The thing I'm going to do is bigger, it's better. We'll come back to that. But then He does something else. He doesn't just say, this is not time, but then he begins to kind of define what really is true about him. They say, Show yourself, he says, my time's not come, and then he makes a statement. Your time is always here. So I've got I've to explain something. This, this, this idea of the appropriate and apportioned time is another picture, again I know, of God's Pre ordained appointments for the work of Jesus. I know that, again, that messes with you, but this is, he's saying, it's not time yet. God's appointed something, this is not it. it not in this way, not in this time frame. Notice, again, beginning in verse 14, uh, he, he, does because, he steps out in public, but he does it on his terms, on his time. And he's saying to them, look, your time is wrong. Did you catch that? For you, it's always the right time. So I want to define some words we've heard us maybe mentioned before. So the word "secular" comes from a Latin word with the Latin word "seculum," which just simply means an era, an age, or a period of time. And so secularism, by definition, is time-ism. momentism. Now don't miss this. Jesus says, "These things work on my time, my schedule, my way." We live under a different understanding of time. Secularism, that is the rejection of all things eternal, is the best way to say it, is "nowism. Nowism. Right now, right? Has to be in this moment. Right? For example, if someone were to ever say to you, "Lose yourself in the moment, you own it. Don't ever let it go. Do not miss your, you get it. If someone maybe were to tell you something like that, you should, as a Christian, be able to recognize that as pure, unadulterated secularism. The belief that the moment is now. Everything boils into this moment. You just got to lose yourself, man. Just got to be in the moment, man. Be in the now. Heard it? Don't miss that. He says, you always think it's time. Because you're always living in the now. But what I'm offering you is eternal. Don't miss this. I I heard a famous bumper sticker author say that your best life is now. Right? And, And the only way that's true is if you're going to hell. For the Christian, our best life is the eternity to come. And this is good news for you. For some of you, don't miss this. Like If you're in Christ, you are as close to hell as you will ever be. This is, as clo- this is the greatest suffering you'll ever endure. This is as close to the eternal separation from God you'll ever, ever experience. There is paradise, pleasures in his hands forevermore because we'll be in his presence, embraced, held close by the righteous and mighty God and creator of the universe. Oh, we have an eternity. God didn't just invent things for our blessing that we can see. God invented time for our blessing. But on the other hand, don't miss what Jesus is saying. If, if you're apart from me, if you're separated from Christ, then this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. This is as good as it gets. And that would make sense. If this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be, then you're right. The time is now. Lose yourself in the moment. Throw future away. But we are literally subspecies eternitatis. That is, we exist under the aspect of eternity. We live in the moment and yet in eternity. We are both. And this is a profoundly subversive and yet fulfilling proclamation, right? In Christ, now matters. There is judgment over now in this life. But in Christ, eternity matters and you might be inclined to believe one is more important than the other right back to the spectrum again right it's all about eternity it's like to to the detriment that like if you don't like love and care for and model christ in your own life because you're so worried about people agreeing with your doctrinal stance then you're missing now matters But on the other hand, if if, if now is so important that you'll throw your own ethics, you'll throw your own principles to the wind because in the moment, your emotions are driving your decisions, then I want to encourage you, eternity matters. And Christ existed in time and eternity for our sake. We exist now under the aspect of eternity. Now and forever are tied together in Christ. Do you know who is the greatest secularist? Do you know the most secularist people, the most secularized individuals in our society? The most now, now, now people? Children. And they'll, they'll defiantly yell that. Now! But what any good parent ought to do is begin to like teach a child to experience the day-to-day in light of the longer term. Like, isn't that maturity? I mean, there's an eight. I mean, you shouldn't like, cri- don't criticize your kid like, hey, you know, my, my three-year-old's financial portfolio for retirement is lousy, right? Like that's, you get, that's okay, that's on the other side, right? But, but part of growth is recognizing now in relation to the future. That's maturity. And so if you ever wonder what secular world, like the secularism looks like, you just look at children, right? That's one of the things that the book of Hebrews tells us about, about Jacob and Esau, Right? Esau was a profane man. Why? Because he was a now-ism, right? He comes home and he's starving from this journey he's been on and he's like, give me some of that stew and Jacob's like, give me your birthright. And what does he say? What good is my inheritance if I starve to death? Give me the food now. Sure, take it, right? And Hebrews tells us that's a profane way to see the world. Same here. So Jesus gives us first a critique of time. Resist to be now-ists, you know what that looks like. I'm afraid you know so well because you really know how unsatisfied you are with the here and now. Maybe you don't want to admit it, but you know just exactly how unsatisfying now is. Or at least you know how fickle it is. For, that, for some of you, it just means you're stuck in the past. Ever met the person who's stuck in high school? Because when that was when the here and now was everything that we wanted it to be. You know what that guy looks like? Always trying to draw attention to the good old days, to his athletic abilities. Do you see where that comes from? It's a nowism. The best days are over, and if we can just relive them, Jesus shows us, and the, the brothers here represent that world's thinking you got to get fame now. You need to be in the right city with the right image. Now's the time. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Here's a second, second one we'll spend the most of the time on as we close. He says, look, you always think the time has come. And then he uses the world. The world. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So First, he critiques kind of like the world's thinking, but then he talks about the world's stance. Here's the way I'd put it. Jesus says, basically, people don't hate you like they hate me because I expose sin. And so that means to follow Jesus means to live at least in some tension with the world. The reason we see this is important because in verse 5 we see it. Not even his brothers believed. And instead of going with him, he says, my time's not yet come. The world doesn't hate you for these reasons. And he gives us a really cool picture that we'll come back to and land on. Jesus avoids a premature triumphal entry. And we'll get to the feast he wanted to present himself to, right? We'll get the party that he wanted to walk in triumphally to, right? But he knew if he walked in on that first day, when people were looking for him, there would be a premature triumphal entry before the time came. That's important. But then he gives us a, a picture here that it's really pretty profound, right? Your time's always here. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. My time's not yet come. So he shows up, sneaks in, in private, verse 10 tells us. They're looking for him, again, muttering about, if you will, disagreeing on who he is. And then he stands up in verse 14 and begins to teach. They marveled, right? Did you catch that? Like, we don't like what he's saying. We can't stand it. It's subversive. But what do they, they mar- They're like, it's, but it's amazing, so much so that they say, like, how does this man have all this learning? He's never studied under us. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, listen to this bombshell. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If anyone's will is aligned with the Father's to do God's will, he will have understanding. He will see. Don't miss this. Obedience and understanding are directly connected. If you don't see God as a sovereign, if you don't see him as a king, someone you lay down your will for and seek his will, then you won't understand or have answers to life's most difficult questions. That's important for some of you nerds like me out there, right? You think you have to figure it all out? And what we come to find out is this, in the end, the lack of worship will lead to lack of understanding, not necessarily the other way around. Your lack of understanding in this particular area is because you don't really see Jesus rightly and worship and love him. In fact, you just may love comfort so much that you won't take the next step until you understand it. Don't miss that. That's a form of disobedience. For some of you, this means that you don't have the answers to the deep theological questions because you have not submitted your will to obey him. And something weird will happen when you say, fine, I'll obey you as sovereign. Something will blow your mind. The answers to your questions will start to fall into place. Or at the very least, they'll fall out of place and you realize they were dumb questions to begin with. They were just things you were using to hide and misdirect from your disobedience. Don't miss that. Our obedience and our worship, our, our submission to God's will is what leads to understanding. Not necessarily the other way around. This is a big deal. Because you will justify anything you love. Look, man, what would you buy on Black Friday? I bet you can come up with a really good reason. I bet you used words like we need it. Right? You get it? You found a way to justify something that you just really wanted. And Jesus says, if what you really want isn't peace from me, then you'll find a way to justify whatever it is that you're after. I saw this. (laughs) Went to seminary. And, uh, and it began to dawn on me, like, most of the people in, around me were trying to, like, figure out God through understanding while hiding, like, deep sin. And I was like, these people are a mess. They're, like, trying to have peace with God by, like, by like through book smarts. What a mess. And I was like, oh, shoot. I'm in there with them. And if this is you, you know what this is like. And I gotta, I, I'm going to tell you, like, just listen, if what you're saying is I won't follow God, I won't obey him until I understand him, what you're really saying is I am God, I know better than him. Until he justifies himself to me, then I won't do what he wants. And that disobedience, that unsubmissiveness will keep you from understanding the answers to deep questions. People will run after whatever they desire. They'll find a way to justify it later. Hence, credit card industry. They'll figure it out later. Look, You know the science behind healthy food. You know Cheetos are bad for you, right? But that doesn't seem like no one, oh yeah, the the science, maybe some of you, but most of you are just going after what you desire and you'll justify it later. But if your will is to obey, look what Jesus says, that's when you'll understand. And the fruit, did you catch what will happen then? The fruit will be the glory that goes to God. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is the one who's true. Here's the way we'll land on that. Trust those who seek God's glory. Mistrust everyone else. Trust those who seek God's glory, especially the church or a pastor of a church, but mistrust everyone else, especially the church and the pastor of a church. Like, if this doesn't make much of Jesus, you should be able to smell it, right? Like, I think... I don't I don't get it like and and this is pretty amazing. This is and any this is how, look how he illustrates it to begin. He said like you like hey, you have a demon blah blah blah. And then in verse 22, did you catch that? You see Moses gave you circumcision. How many of you saw that coming? He goes to circumcision to display something. These people were trying to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Don't miss what Jesus was doing. He was pointing to something. He was revealing himself. He was showing himself to be something better. He basically says it this way. Look, on a Sabbath, you gave a man the marks of God's promise through circumcision. And what does he say? I just did it better than you. You gave these people, you think it's okay to work on the Sabbath as long as you're giving someone the marks of God's covenant, right? Guess what? Me too. Me too. My covenant is in my blood. Get it? You, you justify working on the Sabbath because you think it points to God. So do I. You're welcome. In my blood, in my body, is a new covenant by faith that is marked a new creation, a new existence that doesn't, that doesn't simply exist here and now, but exists forever. You could be so close to Jesus and completely miss him. Let me close this way. It's really good news. If you'll see Jesus interacting with the world, you'll see good news. It's really good news that he didn't settle for worldly fame on its terms. It's really good news he didn't take the advice of his brothers. He was willing to give up the worldly fame on its terms so that he could bring you and me to God this was the great feast. The feast of unleavened bread that ends in the Passover that we'll celebrate as we look to on Easter. It's not the big feast. It's the lesser of the feast. This was the big feast. Hear this good news. Jesus forfeited being famous so that he could be our atoning sacrifice. Jesus forfeited a great name and a great amazing festival so that he could take a lower name and exalt us. Thank God that Jesus didn't listen to his brothers and the world's timing and expectation. He defied them so that he could save you. Jesus defies the world's timing, and he defies the world's expectations on behalf of that world. Thank God that his teaching isn't man-made, but it comes from God the Father. Thank God that he didn't come in and inaugurate this celebration. A.W. Pink says it this way, he gave up fame so that instead he could come at the Passover and give up his own blood, under which we could finally have shelter. See the good news. If rubber stamping the world's movements and ideas and motives is what we're after, then by all means, follow Elon Musk, right? Follow Jeff Bezos. They got it figured out, don't they? But take Jesus' words to heart. Now is always time. It's always, you think, the time. Thank God that Jesus didn't settle for that nowism. Thank God that what he offers us is eternal. It comes from the Father and it lasts forever. Would you trust him? That's what you, would you trust that he's true? Would you trust the fact that he's pointing to God makes him true? Maybe for some of you, the response today is like to simply just check the box that says, I want to know more about becoming a Christian. You can begin to dig up some of these false beliefs about Jesus and experience true and eternal joy in him. Maybe for some of you, it's just to say, God, give me the vision. Give me a view of time and space that I'm not lorded over by what is I'm experiencing right now give me a view that God has in Jesus may we respond obediently in his invitation to believe let's pray Jesus we need you to show up and do for us what we could never do for ourselves Uh, we need you to point us to the truth that we could never comprehend on our own Uh, we just don't have the ability And given the opportunity, we'll be just like Jesus' brothers. We'll get caught up in the world. We'll get caught up in the currents that are driving us along and we'll just get caught up in the tyranny of the now. For those of us in this room, we realize how unsatisfying the here and the now really is. Help us to begin to see your son Jesus as the introduction and entrance into a greater and eternal joy. Help us to see the glory that's Uh, that is offered is greater in God the Father than in ourselves. God, we're never going to be able to, with our own desire for our own glory, see Jesus as great and worthy of glory because He laid down His own glory for the glory of the Father. You're going to have to do that for us. You're going to have to teach us this. You're going to have to open our eyes to this. God, some of us were so close, like Jesus, brothers. Would you draw us even closer now to show you that you are the sacrifice? You are the greater feast. You are the greater satisfaction. You are the greater hope and rest. Help us to find that in you. In your name we ask it. Amen.